and this is Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. In just a bit, we talk with Dr. Paul Offit, who sits on the FDA advisory board about the new COVID-19 vaccine recommendations. And we will hear from the former and last ambassador of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to the United States, Adela Raz, about women's rights and the ta- after the Taliban took over. Plus, we'll talk about earworms, Avi. Some, I've had a few, and some have been more welcome than others. Let us know what's stuck in your brain right now. Maybe that'll help get it out of there. I don't know. The get number, it out. The number is 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at org. Before we get to all of that, as yeah. we do with every show, we start with some top headlines, and there's no doubt about what the top story in the region is today. The prison escapee, Danilo Cavalcante, was caught and apprehended and taken into custody this morning in Chester County around 8.15 a.m. Police were able to use a heat-sensing technology after a burglar alarm was triggered to basically triangulate where Cavalcante was. Here is PA State Police Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens. They were able to move in very quietly. They had the element of surprise. Cavalcante did not realize he was surrounded until that had occurred. That did not stop him from trying to escape. He began to crawl through thick underbrush, taking his rifle with him as he went. One of the Customs and Border Control teams, Bortac, uh, had a dog with them. They released the dog. The dog subdued him. He continued to resist, but was uh, forcibly taken into custody. And the big takeaway, or one of the biggest takeaways, no shots fired. Yeah, I am. You know, I know the region is breathing a sigh of relief. I mean, schools have been closed, businesses affected. People have been hearing those helicopters overhead. But uh, Governor Shapiro called the work of the coalition of 500 officers led by the Pennsylvania State Police, law enforcement excellence. And um, here is the district attorney, um, talking about the call to the Brandau family. That's the family of, of the ex-girlfriend that Calvacante was in prison for life for murdering. One of the first calls we made upon learning about this capture was to the Brandau family, who, as you can imagine, had been living in a complete nightmare. They are so grateful to the men and women who helped with this capture. They can now finally sleep again. Yeah, and I should mention uh, another win by law enforcement. I mean, Cavacante was taken alive. Uh, He was able to walk to the vehicle that transported him uh, to the station to be interviewed. And so now, you know, it's 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 a a major win um, for law enforcement at this point. And uh, the story's not over. Yeah. Still a lot of unknowns about Mm -hmm. how this happened, Mm -hmm. how he was able to evade capture for so long. Um, And so the story concluding at least one chapter peacefully today, chapters still to be written. Yeah. Um, Another thing, we're going to move on to our next story. Um, A victory in court yesterday uh, to former mayoral candidate Jeff Brown. You remember we had him on the show in the spring. Um, The court dismissed a case that was brought uh, against his super PAC. Um, This case was brought up in April of 2023. It was splashed in local headlines, and anecdotally, it was a major blow to the Brown uh, campaign. Um, 
the claim for the city board of ethics was that um, Brown had illegally coordinated with a PAC called For a Better Philadelphia, but the judge dismissed this case, and they and we can quibble about the reasons why, but the case was dismissed. And I'll give oh, Jeff Brown, we'll yeah, I'll second. give Jeff Brown a chance because we pressed him on this when he came into the into uh, Studio Two, and he said he would be vindicated. So here's what he had to say: They have communicated with the public. Um, in a completely illegal and inappropriate way. And it's all part of trying to, to get me not to be a successful candidate. I follow every rule. That's my personality. And there, there is no way that I would blatantly disregard rules or laws. It's just not me. Yeah, and of course, this ruling neither rejected any of the facts that were laid out by the board nor challenged the board's authority to regulate super PACs. And the judge instead focused on a, on a definition that candidates are not allowed to raise money for PACs that fund them. And so it's a technicality, but, you know, I mean, technically, Jeff Brown, he is vindicated in this case. Well, let's lay it out, because what the the Board of Ethics had said, and this is going to sound technical, maybe a little complicated for people, but I think it's important to understand. The Board of Ethics had said you cannot coordinate with a super PAC up to a year before you announce yourself as a candidate. They had said this in 2018, that that was what their rule was. Everyone admits that Brown broke that rule, that he coordinated with this PAC almost up until he announced his candidacy, well within the one-year window. What the judge said is that the Board of Ethics rules are not what the Board of Ethics thinks they are. They have misinterpreted their own rules. So imagine you're another campaign. You play by that one-year window rule. Brown violates it, and the judge says, well, the rule was never what everyone thought it was. That's kind of what happened here. And there are implications moving forward here, Cherry, which means... If this ruling stands, it's not appealed by the Board of Ethics, that anyone who wants to run for mayor can go around telling a PAC or any dark money group, I'm going to run for mayor. Let's raise a bunch of money together. We'll coordinate together, and then we'll stop the minute before I declare my candidacy. That's not what people thought the rule was. And so that introduces possibly a huge funnel of money into future elections that can be coordinated between campaigns and super PACs up until the moment of declaration. We'll see if the ruling, if this judge's dismissal ruling stands, because we'll there could be an precedent. appeal. But, but that is a pretty big precedent and could totally change, I, I would imagine, could totally change how future campaigns function. We shall see. Uh, and, and again, I'll say that, you know, he was pretty confident in here when, when he was pressed. That and I understand his frustration because it did hurt his interp- campaign. It did severely hurt. He's no he's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was not uh, successful. Sherelle uh, Parker is the Democratic nominee right. here. So we shall see what happened. Obviously, his interpretation totally. uh, was was one was correct. By the and judge. I understand exactly. why he would be frustrated with, with them putting their he said thumb on the scale and, you know, making a public example of him when it turns out he had not mm-hmm. technically broken any rules. Um, but politics I, in Philly. I politics in Philly. But I'm just I'm just saying if this is what the rules are going forward, it's a totally it's a different ball game for super PACs and candidates. For sure. Anyways, we're going to totally shift gears mm-hmm. now to COVID. Uh, COVID infections have been ticking up along with hospitalizations. The FDA recently approved a newly formulated vaccine that's a better match for this year's COVID variants. And the CDC just came up with recommendations for who should get the shot. Dr. Paul Offit, who directs the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Vaccine Education Center and is a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, joined us earlier this morning to make sense of these new recommendations. 
Well, this is the same recommendation as last year. Last year, the recommendation for the booster dose was that everybody over six months of age should receive it. Last year was the bivalent booster. This year, it's a monovalent booster that represents at least one of the circulating strains. But it is a different recommendation from pretty much every other country in this world. I mean, the United Kingdom, Germany, Scandinavian countries, the World Health Organization have a targeted recommendation, meaning they recommend a booster dose for those who are most at risk of being hospitalized or dying from this virus, because the goal of this vaccine is to prevent severe disease. So who are those high risk groups? People over 75, people who have health problems that put them at high risk, like diabetes or obesity or chronic lung or heart disease or kidney disease, people who are immune compromised and pregnant people. But we didn't do that. And I'm not sure why, because I think if we really want to have an impact, we should target that recommendation. Now let's talk about that. So the CDC says all Americans six months and older should receive at least one dose of this booster vaccine. Um, you said you're not sure why they did that. Can you at least hazard a guess? Um, maybe it's because we don't have a national health system. And they were worried that if they had a targeted recommendation that it would be harder for some people to get a vaccine. So for example, let's say someone who's healthy and 30, but lives in the home of someone who's immune compromised or someone who's uh, who works in a nursing home. I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm not sure why it was that we made a re recommendation different from these other countries. What's the downside of that? Well, again, I, I think any time you inject yourself with a biological, um, there's there's a benefit and there's always some risk, even if it's a, a small and rare risk. And so I think that anyone who benefits from a vaccine should certainly get it. But um, if, if the benefits are less clear, then I think, you know, we have to be humble enough to realize that there could be side effects. And so um, just target it for those who most likely benefit. I'm, I'll give you an example. They, they they made a point which was interesting, that people over, the, the group most likely to be hospitalized, not surprisingly, with those over 75. The second group most likely to be hospitalized were children less than four, many of whom did not have any sort of underlying health problems. Well, the reason that was true was that the children under four have a very low immunization rate. It's about 10%. Of the of, of people under four have gotten vaccinated so vaccinate them i think children under four should be vaccinated but to, to say they should be boosted kind of misses the point because you're only going to be boosting about 10 percent of children less than four so emphasize that you need to uh to vaccinate uh, children less than four because they can be hospitalized and they can die from this virus in terms of communication because it seems like we're going to be doing this every year for a while should these shots be advertised as annual shots? Should they be advertised as boosters? Does the language matter here in terms of, you know, making sure that the people that really do need them get them? I think what's happened is we're, we have this analogy to influenza vaccine and mm. certainly people need an influenza vaccine. And that's because the virus changes so much from one year to the next, that even if you've been naturally infected or immunized the year before, you are still at high risk of disease, including serious disease. So you need an annual influenza vaccine. But is that this virus? Is SARS-CoV-2 similar enough to influenza that it too demands a yearly vaccine? And I would argue the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is that when you talk about protection against severe disease, which again is the goal, the immunological component that protects you is something called T-cells, specifically something called killer T-cells. And those cells recognize, T-cells recognize parts of the virus that really are conserved 
that haven't really evolved over time. So if you go to the original strain, Wuhan 1, or you go to the current strains like EG5 or BA2.86, the, the parts of the virus recognized by T cells have remained conserved. And that's why if you've had three doses of vaccine or you've had two doses of a vaccine and a natural infection, um, which gives you hybrid immunity, you likely are protected against severe disease, whereas that's not true for influenza. With influenza, when we pick, we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, picks influenza strains every year. If we're wrong, and we've been wrong, say, three times in the last 20 years, a miss is a mile. And if you get that vaccine and it doesn't contain the strain that's circulating, your protective efficacy often drops to less than 20%. That's not true with this virus. You're still protected against severe disease because those T cells, which I think are the unsung hero of this pandemic, are recognizing conserved regions on the virus. And so what do we know about the, the newest variant? Does this new booster provide any additional protection or are you pretty much okay with the shots you already have? I think you're largely okay with the shots that you already have, assuming you're not in a high-risk group. Um, I think to, to, to choose to get a booster if you're not in a high-risk group is a low-risk, low-reward phenomenon. I think the risks are very small. I think the benefits are that you will protect yourself against mild disease for four to six months, and there's an advantage to that. But um, again, I do think that if the goal is, is to prevent serious illness, not all mild illness, then we should really focus on those groups, groups who are getting seriously ill. And quick follow-up, what about long COVID? Because one of the arguments to say, get your updated booster, you know, is that you would be at a better chance of preventing long COVID. What do you think about that? Right, so there was a study done in Italy where they, they looked at people who were unvaccinated and then got COVID. And what they found was that the incidence, at least in their hands, and long COVID has a variety of definitions, but in their hands, the incidence was 42%. Then they looked at people who got one dose of vaccine and got COVID, and then found that the incidence of long COVID dropped from 42% to 30%. Then they looked at people who got two doses of, of vaccine, then got COVID, and the incidence went from 30% down to 17%. So clearly vaccine vaccination was helping. But then they looked at three doses of vaccine, then got COVID, and it went from 17% to 16%. So it's not clear to me that additional doses are dramatically lessening the risk of long COVID. Very quickly, before we wrap up here, Paul, um, should I think about my risk equation differently if I'm a younger, healthier person, but I live with or have frequent contact with someone in a vulnerable group? Yes, I think so. I think that we are responsible for those around us. And that if you're living with someone who's immune compromised, or who is elderly, or has multiple uh, uh, health problems that puts them at risk, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Sure. That is Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at CHOP and a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. Thanks, Paul, for your time. Thank you. And by the way, I also asked Paul if it was okay to get your flu vaccine and your COVID booster at the same time. And he said that it was fine to get those shots together. So you don't have to worry. Shout out to my mom, who, who I know has to get both. So there you go. And coming up, we're talking about music and our brains and why some songs get stuck in our heads. I know I've had quite a few. You can email studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499. Tell us which one is stuck in We've got a whole list of earworms that people <laughs> have sent in already. And I think, I hope, that by speaking them into the world, into existence, 
we might help people extinguish these earworms for the moment. Although there are, there are some real strategies, and we will talk about that as well. There are real strategies yes. for getting rid of earworms. So we will also discuss that, the power of music, and so much more on Studio 2. Stick with us. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Studio 2, and I am Cherry Gregg. Oh, boy. <laughs> that one's going to get stuck. Yup. <laughs> I'm Avi Wolfman, Aaron. Earworms, they play over and over and over again in our minds, in our heads. It's often not even a song we like. That's a good song, by the way. That's Waterloo by ABBA, sent in by our listener Julie and her music students. But regardless of the song, we often find ourselves humming the tune in our heads over and over and over again. Music and the human brain were made for one another. That's what Princeton University professor Elizabeth Margulis has found in her research. She studies how the brain responds to music, why a few notes can have an emotional punch, and why we love music that repeats. In fact, 90% Avi, of the music we hear is music we've heard before. Huh. Elizabeth joins us now to explain our connection to music and the power it has over us. Welcome to Studio Two, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And you, our listening friends, we want to hear from you. Is there a song that you just can't shake from your head or one that pulls you back into the past, evoking a strong memory? Call us 888-477-9499 or email studio 2 at whyy.org. We want to hear from you. I'm thinking right now about the opening riff to Crazy Train <laughs> by uh, Black Sabbath, because Patrick, a listener, sent that in as his mm. earworm of the moment. Um, so take a song like Crazy Train or any song, Elizabeth. What are the key elements of a song that sucks us in? A catchy song. Yeah. So in, in fact, a wide range, as you're probably seeing from the um, stuff you're getting in from your listeners, really a wide variety of things can get stuck in people's heads. And the more recently you've listened to the song and the more repeatedly you've listened to the song, the likelier it is to get stuck. So let's dig in a little bit on this whole idea of getting stuck. How does the brain take in music? So one of the things we know about even passive music listening, when you might be just, um, you know, doing the dishes and you've got something on the radio, uh, is that if we look at what's happening in people's brains in that kind of moment, uh, even though they're not do making the music or singing or, you know, playing an electric guitar themselves, that the areas of the brain that uh, deal with planning motor movements come online. So there's this component of imagined participation, even when people aren't involved in making the music at all. So there's this kind of mental singing along uh, that you can end up uh, getting stuck on in particular kinds of circumstances. Are there certain types of chord progressions that our brain gloms onto 
links up with sort of more naturally. There's certain types of melodies that appeal to us, um, you know, across cultures, across borders, or is it kind of random? Certain songs tend to be especially catchy when they use a melody or some kind of structure that is sufficiently familiar that you can make predictions about what's going to come next, mm. um, but then also involves some kind of little surprising twist. There's some kind of optimal mix between novelty and familiarity uh, that tends to um, result in lots and lots of earworms. So let's, how many people are affected by this earworm phenomenon? Is like everybody, does it become a more serious, annoying thing in some more than others? Because for the most part, the earworms don't bother me too much. And they usually, I kind of forget about them over time. Yeah, that's consistent with what people say. So there've been a number of large scale surveys and what they've tended to find, number one, is that earworms are incredibly common. So more than 90% of people report that they've had one in the last week when, when mm. asked and like a quarter of people say they get them every day. Um, and kind of one of the most surprising findings that's come out of that survey work is that most earworms actually seem to be fine with people. It's really only in special <laughs> circumstances that they become like extra annoying. Like maybe when there's a radio show that like plays who let the dogs out. I don't know. Um, but generally earworms out. are like. <laughs> there you go. So you start in well, something, Elizabeth. I have found, at least for <laughs> me, that the ones Sorry. that are the most annoying are the commercial jingles, which seem somehow like calibrated to stick in your head really quickly, but then get old really fast too. Like I'm thinking of Andrew who submitted the Whopper, Whopper, Whopper Burger King song, which goes Whopper, Whopper, yes. Whopper, Whopper, Junior Bacon, Double oh, Whopper. So sorry if, I, <laughs> sorry if I offended anyone by singing that. But but it does seem like there's a class of songs that are really good at burrowing in fast, but then getting tiresome fast too. Is that a real phenomenon? It is a real phenomenon. In fact, for the longest time before other areas of cognitive science got interested in what music could tell us, a lot of the research about catchiness was in business schools. Mm. So people that work or, or the people that work in marketing and stuff were like really interested in jingles and how you can use this knowledge to carry messages about Whoppers to your unsuspecting listeners. Um, yes. So the more, you know, there is this really robust phenomenon that we've seen um, we've seen in research again and again, where uh, when you play something for people repeatedly, even if it starts out not very likable, um, they tend to like it more and more across repetitions, but then there's a point where it's too much and they start liking it even less than they did in the beginning. And kind of the simpler uh, song is, the faster you go through that inverted U curve. Like you start liking it really fast and then you also start disliking mm. it really fast. So that's probably the case for some of the songs that you're thinking through now in the jingle front. I think about some of my favorite musical artists. And a lot of times when I first listen to an album, like I don't like it. And I'm like, I don't know why everybody loves it. But then I listen to it like two or three times. Then I'm like, I love it. I, I can hear why everybody loves it. Can you talk about why that familiar that familiarity sort of shifts your point of view? So if you if you hear something, you may immediately be repulsed, but then it becomes an earworm because you become familiar. Could you expand on that? Yeah, it's it's a very counterintuitive 
concept. Um, but it's uh, something that I use every year when I teach um, the cognitive science of music. I use this demonstration on the first day of class where I um, play students a uh, piano piece, just like a solo piano piece. And then I tell them I'm going to play them another recording by a different pianist of that same piece. And then I ask them to like, tell me everything about comparing the performances and which one they liked more and what have you. And then I, I, it's kind of mean because I do let them go on at length about their thoughts. Um, and uh, unbeknownst to the students, um, it's I'm just playing them the same recording twice. And uh, almost always they think the second one sounded just really different and like expressively mm. richer and like just so much more interesting and musical. Um, even though I, I literally just press, press play again on the same file. So it's, it's a really strong effect that um, hearing something a second time, you already have a framework for what you expect to happen in that piece. And that means you're tuning in now to different aspects of the sound. And it often allows you to kind of um, just get in there and have a more satisfying uh, experience. So that that's something that operates at a really large scale when you're hearing something not just twice and not just in immediate succession, but something that's like just playing, you know, here on social media, you hear it when you're at the movie theater, you hear it when you're like out, um, out around in, in the world. And uh, so yeah, you, you, it, it, you not only like it better, but it actually sounds different to you. And if you use like a host of measures to understand how people are hearing the sound. That is Princeton University professor Elizabeth Margulis messing with her students for the sake of science. <laughs> Dirty <tricks. laughs> uh, We're talking about that your work. spend the whole semester regaining their trust. It's really not the best. <laughs> uh, talking about earworms, why songs get stuck in our head, and really more generally about our relationship with music, how it lights up our brain. I want to bring in a caller here. Holly has a question for you, Elizabeth, about sad songs. Holly, you're on Studio Two. What's your question? Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I had a question about, yes, sad songs. I love listening to sad songs sometimes. And why is it that um, that notes or some songs evoke like a strong melancholy mm. response when you first hear them? Like um, my example is Joni Mitchell's River. Oh, my God. Yes, mm. absolutely. That song almost <laughs> like makes me cry. Holly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so, so Elizabeth, talk about emotional response to different types of sounds. I mean, is, is it consistent? I've heard often that like minor chords make us sad too, and I don't know if there's any truth to that. Is there science here that suggests certain notes, certain sounds, certain arrangements make us sadder? Yeah, great question. So um, basically, when we think about emotional responses to music, the picture gets pretty complex quickly because there are so many different mechanisms involved. Um, so you can think about um, kinds of sounds that mimic what you might hear when a person's crying, right? And so there's just this kind of link uh, between how language is used and how music is used that tends to be important. Um, but there's also a whole other layer where music ends up getting very strongly associated with memories in our lives, with the kind of visual imagery that it's been paired with um, in the past such that later on you listen to a passage that sounds like something you heard before and it kind of brings back that whole set of surrounding circumstances. And then what feels sad about the music is actually coming through this 
um, intermediate step of the scene that or, or the memory that you might be recalling. And I want to talk about a song that because uh, I love to dance and there's certain songs that make me want to dance. And one is that I kind of grew up dancing on by one and only Whitney Houston from uh, it's from 1987. It's called I Want to Dance with Somebody. I, I want to play a little bit of that. Now, you can't see me, Elizabeth, but Avi can see me and he can attest that I started grooving. Are there certain songs that beyond an emotional response, but that you almost can't help but just tapping your fingers or snapping to or dancing to? And what type of songs evoke that type of movement? Absolutely. So in scientists tend to call that high groove music. So mm. music that tends to elicit movement, even when you're not um, asking for it, and ha have shown that this is the, the music that tends to make adults move is also the music that tends to make kids move. So there's a whole study where they just brought kids in and um, played the music that was either the kind that made adults move or or did not and um, measured all kinds of things about the kinds of physical responses the kids made. And um, if you watch these videos, it's just amazing. There's a really, really uh, intuitive response to songs like the one you just played that, you know, get kids uh, active and out there in the living room dance floor. I want to bring in an email from Matthew. <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> Matthew blasts the stick song, Come Sail Away. You know, come sail away, come sail, until his son gets out of bed when his son sleeps in for too long. But then the song gets stuck in Matthew's, the dad's head, for the rest of the day. A little boomerang effect mm. there. Um, so uh, we have mm. a couple listeners as well, Vicky and then an anonymous listener who had some tips about how to get songs stuck out of your head. And they said if you have like a kind of like a baseline song that you use, like the girl from Ipanema or the long and winding road by the Beatles, if you sing that baseline song, it can drive the other song out. Is that true? And that would that help Matthew with his sticks dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my top recommendations, actually, is just to replace the earworm with a less annoying song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that really works. It works, it does. Another odd um, solution that has been uh, supported by research actually is chewing gum mm. um, because chewing gum disrupts some of the motor planning circuitry that uh, earworms depend on. So yeah, if you just wanna stop the sound altogether, like sababa yubba or something might be the best strategy <laughs> some hubba bubba by the way that that hopefully answers uh Geraldine's question who said uh, th they had been streaming ally mcbeal the 90s tv show and couldn't get luther vandross's first last my everything out of their head and hopefully those tips will help chew you some, some gum chew some gum i, I want to expand the conversation a little bit elizabeth and talk about um adding a visual element because music uh, is one part of it, but then when you add the visuals, how does that shift things? Absolutely. So um, lots of times nowadays we're listening um, over headphones. So we're really just getting the auditory um, 
part. Uh, but even in those kinds of cases, we tend to be supplying the missing visuals with um, uh, imaginative responses. So we see this in all kinds of uh, research that when people are listening to music, um, they often are experiencing vivid visual imagery, vivid recollections of memories that happened in their own life, or imaginings of fictional kind of movie scenes that might accompany it. That's a really, really important widespread part of music listening. We are speaking with Princeton University professor Elizabeth Margulis about the science of music. A lot of you have been sending in your earworms, for instance, mm -hmm. Nick has Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks stuck in their head. Christian, Afternoon Delight is rattling around right now. Um, Faith has wheels on the bus. That's an unfortunate Go one. Oh, there. boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask um, about note groupings, chord groupings. I don't exactly know how to phrase this because, uh, you know, you can tell I'm not a, a music mm -hmm. expert, but but it seems to me like, for instance, like C, F, G, A minor, you play those in some order on repetition and it sounds like a melody to the human brain for whatever reason. Like those, do we know why those groupings seem to light up our brain and, and feel like a melody when we hear them? Well, here's the thing about repetition. Repetition is so powerful that not only um, does it work for repeating something like CFGA, like you're saying, but even you can take clips of speech that weren't intended to sound like song at all and um, replay those uh, a number of times in a row and then go back and play the original sentence that um, the words came from. And it sounds like at the moment that it starts the part you heard repeated, it sounds like a Disney movie where the person just busts into song. So there really is a tight link between repetition and perceived musicality. Uh, that's, that's really interesting and helps us kind of introspect about what it is to hear something as music. But like you said, it can't be pure repetition, right? Like you can't just play a C note over and over and over again. That doesn't sound appealing to us. It's familiarity blended with repetition, blended with surprise. And the surprise part to me is the part I don't quite, that feels like more art than science. Like how do you integrate a surprise into a pattern in a way that's like not jarring, but actually appealing? Yeah. So people have made all kinds of computational models to try to kind of crunch out melodies that are going to have just that sweet spot of surprise in them and um you know have all kinds of theories about the the, the kind of music theory behind uh, how you might do this and and how it might work but you know just like you're saying <laughs> new and surprising ways to do that keep emerging right mm. because um what what but what is familiar is changing dynamically because people are meanwhile trying to create things that have surprises so now those surprises become overly familiar and you need a new kind of surprise and that's part of how you get stylistic changes in music where the songs from 2022 sound different from the songs from 1992 um, and that's just one of those mechanisms that's contributing to that change and we strung a few pieces of music together that have a little something in common and i want you to take a listen Whopper, 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 Junior, Double, Triple, Whopper, Flame Grill taste with perfect toppers, I rule this day. Hey, I just met you, and this is crazy, but here's my number, 
And so, Elizabeth, when I hear these songs, just the simplicity, it seems like I just was uh, hosting, a. we had a regional gospel competition here at WHYY over the weekend. And one of the things that uh, caught me was the, the, the music, the songs that had the simplest hooks or the simplest lyrics were the ones that I sang along to and the ones that I just could not forget. How important is this simplicity to creating an earworm? Yeah, earworms tend to work best when they're they sit in a range that you can sing and when they're um, singable in general. So mm. think about things like having small steps rather than big leaps that are hard to hit. Um, all of those things tend to make something stickier. And those are all elements that we might want to describe as making a song simpler. However, kind of what sounds simple to one person might not sound simple to another, depending on um, the music that they've listened to and the patterns that they've absorbed out of listening to that music. And that's part of how um, you can get situations where I'm having an earworm that's different from the one you're having. And that's just related to the kind of music that we've listened to most and kind of what kinds of patterns we're used to crunching. A few more earworms from our listeners. Uh, Tristan's is Next Time Might Be Your Time by Blue Jean Tyranny. Steve is Call Me When You Land by Old Sea Brigade. Sheila, I Want to Be Rich by Callaway. I'm curious, Elizabeth, do you field calls from music executives and producers asking for like the secret code to how to make a hit song or an earworm? So normally in my field, actually, it goes the other way around where artists do really cool, interesting things. And then the scientists try to like, look at that and be like, oh, what can we understand about the human mind um, from kind of what works and what doesn't work? Uh, I don't know as, as many examples where it kind of goes the other way around. Um, and I, you know, I just think that's part of the way art tends to work is that it's like ahead of the times and you know kind of go out there and doing the novel stuff that everybody else tries to catch up to yeah and we only have a couple minutes so but i had to ask you because i'm a i just went to a big beyonce concert here in philadelphia <laughs> we <know>. and <laughs> we talked about it several times on the show but um because i think she does these multi-sensory type shows um, that yeah. people may sing better than her, they may dance better than her, but put all together, can you talk about the multi-sensory aspect of music and how this whole, vi- you know, the music video culture, I mean, it's really sort of, I think, taking earworms to another level and we only have about a minute and a half. Yeah, that's uh, such an important way of, uh, a part of the way music works. Um, we're finding in in our work that people uh, very reliably have these elaborate kind of daydreams when they're listening to music where mm-hmm. they're supplying all this other sensory information that might not be present in the sound itself. And because of how multimodal and multisensory everyday life is and the way music's mixed up and all of that, um, when people are having these imaginings that feel really subjective and idiosyncratic, they actually often end up being quite similar to what somebody else imagines to the same song. So there's this kind of like code, multi-sensory code that people are able to unpack from what they're hearing that results in kind of wild shared imaginings in lots of circumstances. The mystery and magic of music and Elizabeth Margulis at Princeton University gets to study it. How cool is that? And how cool that you joined us on Studio 2. Thanks so much for the time, Elizabeth. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we're going out.
with some Beyonce on Studio Two. Stick with Yay! us. <laughs> Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erin. And I'm Cherry Gregg. It's been a little more than two years since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan shortly after U.S. troops withdrew from that country. Since then, women's rights have been severely restricted. Education, for example, has been a big target for Taliban leaders. Just last month, girls over 10 years old are now no longer allowed to receive an education in over a dozen provinces. And and here to talk about what life is like for women and girls in the country and how their rights have eroded is the former and last ambassador of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to the United States, Adela Raz. She is now the director of the Afghanistan Policy Lab at Princeton University. Welcome to Studio Two, Ambassador. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the big picture. We mentioned Mm -hmm. restrictions on education. What do you see as the major, major rollbacks or restrictions that the Taliban has instituted in these first two years? Give folks a, a view of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. I think it's it's uh, as you rightly mentioned the, the 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 rollback on the rights of Afghan women. It's not only at the space of education. Of course, education is the more Im- the main important area, but it's education. It's working outside. It's earning income. It's uh, gathering socially outside of their home. Uh, it is being in public spaces uh, without uh, male chaperone or, or, or uh, mahram. Uh, it's uh, it's really even the determination and, and hope and view to become as a change maker in the society, which in the last 20 years, there was a window of opportunity for many women in Afghanistan. That means being in the civil service, being in the forefront of the society, being in the security sector, being uh, in the leadership role, all of this. All of this had unfortunately changed and, and it really went to um, the, 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 the level zero. And, and it breaks my heart uh, when I talk and hear with young women in Afghanistan, when once we all talked about how to move forward, how to think bigger, how to be, uh, as I said, the change maker in our country, how to think of a peaceful and prosperous Afghanistan where Afghan women are contributing. Now everybody is just simply thinking how to survive and that hope is completely gone. And an economic impact, I think, for many Afghan women who are the breadwinners, who are uh, single moms, uh, this this is a nightmare because they have to manage a family, a household, and now they're bound to their homes. And and that 
despite the the economic impact there is mental uh, and psychological impacts in lives of so many afghan women and also domestic violence because it, it it does make a difference when you live in a country and constantly for more than two years the regime is announcing one ban yeah. after another and it's around uh, rights of women it impacts yeah. the society overall and I got to ask you, what has been the reaction? I mean, this is a drastic mm-hmm. shift in a very mm-hmm. short period of time after many years mm-hmm. of women mm-hmm. having freedom. Mm-hmm. What have mm-hmm. the women done to sort of respond to this? Mm-hmm. It's it's very brave when uh, we look to these women inside the country. It's it's beyond bravery, I would say. I think uh, they, they, they have not accepted what Taliban is expecting or asking or pushing the Afghan woman to uh, basically surrender. Uh, they have been still fighting on the streets. Demonstrations are happening despite that each of these demonstrations create uh, a, a risk for their life. They are detained, they are tortured, mm. uh, but they still come outside. They still stand strong and tall and say no to it they're still trying to find ways internally at home how to still continue to have homeschool hidden uh, from the Taliban they're still trying to find ways on how to live on how to create economic opportunities but of course it's very minimal it's very small and parallel to this it's not only that they are revolting on the streets they're revolting at home and and the good thing is it's the 21st century we are connected to the social media and it's the age of social media and they have been extremely creative on how to effectively use that to build alliances with the global community of women and feminists outside of Afghanistan to gain their support and really stand uh, strong. And nowadays, as you probably have heard, Mm -hmm. there has been a very strong movement of women inside the country, which they are, um, they have part time to say it very loudly, but a woman, uh, Afghan woman in exile, a strong push for uh, asking the international community and especially the United Nations to recognize gender Can I jump in there? I'm sorry to to interrupt you, but what can the international community do? What levers can mm-hmm. they pull? And what are the risks mm-hmm. of, of pulling those levers, given that the Taliban is, is in power in the country? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, I think risks are always there. Either we pull those pressure, uh, those the, those triggering points or not, because uh, we just know from day one that Taliban are the regime is anti-woman, and I think it's it's less of even uh, even religion. It's more of a political fear they have from uh, Afghan women because the last twenty year, years was a testimony to how far politically driven uh, these women were. So so the risks are all there, but I think the international community, what one thing they can do, there has to be cohesive in uh, and 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 uh, uh, cons- um, coordinated message coming out from the international community towards Taliban that how important the rights of Afghan women or the rights of women for the international community is. Because right now, there are, quote-unquote, the engagement, and these engagements with somehow gradually is moving in the direction of trying to accept and normalize what Taliban are implementing in Afghanistan. But the principles of human rights and the principle of women's rights looks like to be compromised in this discussion. And I think, second, we have international mechanisms. We have uh, international law out there. And and frankly speaking, I think this is the time. This is the time for uh, women globally to really tap on those tools which we have worked on it for, for more than six, seven decades and trying to say this is where we're going to come 
one day to it and utilize it for the protection of rights of women. And now I think this is the time. There is gender persecution. We have to pursue yeah. that path. And and really, I think there is a strong debate of, of if we recognize racial apartheid, why can't we recognize gender apartheid? And we only have about a minute or so left. I, I got to ask you, what does political pressure look like inside of the country, considering the Taliban are in charge. I mean, have the men joined this fight as well? And and is there a way to push, you know, a lever or pull a lever um, of political yes. pressure there? Yes, I think political pressure and pressure on the leadership of the Taliban. I think because sometimes when we talk about the pressure, we kind of confuse it pressuring the the civilians in the country, which they, that's not their fault, but it's the leadership of the Taliban. Most of these leaders, and I think every Afghan woman will tell you the same thing, their families live outside of Afghanistan. Their daughters and their kids go to school. And I think it's the time we need to ask, okay, if, if it's good for them to go outside of Afghanistan to school, why can't you change the same thing inside the country? And I think we should do that. We should also limit their financial uh, abilities and mobilities they have resources outside of afghanistan and and i think we sanctions regime have been effective but sanctions on individuals when we talk about sanctions i think sanction on the country has uh, this is personal view and many uh, probably view the same thing that it may create a gray space but i think sanction on the individuals that are right now in the leadership and making the decision sanctions that on high-ranking members of the current government Exactly, the de facto authorities, yes. That is Adela Raz, director of the Afghanistan Policy Lab at Princeton University and the former slash last ambassador of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to the United States. Adela Raz, thank you for joining us today on Studio Two. Thank you for having me. And that just about does it for our program today, Cherry. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks was the engineer for today's show. You can head on over to whyy.org slash studio two or download us wherever you get your podcasts. And then when you do that, you can rate and review the podcast, which would be pretty helpful to us if you could find two minutes to pull that off. From Studio Two at WHYY here in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And I want to take a special moment to say happy birthday to our producer, Paige Murray Besser. Happy birthday. And also Paige. a happy belated to Joan Isabella, our audio, our general, audio manager. general manager. Happy birthday to the both of you. It's a big birthday Virgo week season. here <laughs> at Studio Two. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening today. And we'll save a slice of cake for you. Absolutely. <laughs>